Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my YouTube videos and Podbean podcasts on my blog, GaudiumAtSpaz22.com. Very excited today uh, because we have Dr. Matthew Ramage of Benedictine College here to talk some uh, theology about uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. Uh, and, and, and we've had some, I had to delay this one week because I got a little sick last week and I've been scheduled to speak out at Benedictine maybe a couple of times and got sick and had to cancel. Fortunately, I am going to be speaking at a conference there on September 16th, and that looks like it's going to be a big green light. My health is back to being 100 percent. So that's great. And so the, the, the gods are smiling, finally smiling on me getting together with Dr. Ramage here uh, to discuss some things. Dr. Ramage is, in fact, a professor of theology, full professor at Benedictine College, which is in Atchison, Kansas, about three hours south of my hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska. So when I go out there for the conference, I will definitely be heading up north to visit my family. He is also the co-director of the Center for Integral the Ecology, not theology, Integral Ecology. And Dr. Remage got his doctorate in 2009 from Ave Maria University in Florida. And he did his dissertation on uh, the, the, a sort of dialogue between Joseph Ratzinger and Thomas Aquinas on a kind of hermeneutics, the proper hermeneutics of scriptural exegesis which uh, is one of the things I kind of want to touch upon today. So welcome, Dr. Ramage. We, uh, we, we finally meet. It is you great know? to make it work, Larry. I, yeah, I, I, feel, I felt like saying, well, we finally meet, Mr. Bond. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> yes, we finally, we finally meet. So that's great. And uh, you also know my wife, uh, Carmina yeah. Chap. Yeah, yes. you were, I think, ill at that conference that I, I saw her at a couple of years ago. But was, Saint, uh, was that Saint? Was that the conference at Saint Bernard's? Uh, it was at Saint Thomas More. Uh, Tom at, at uh, uh, yeah, um, in um, shoot in um, yeah, New Hampshire, New Hampshire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was the first inklings that I was having issues with my inner ear for all my viewers who like to keep up with these things. My inner ear is healing quickly and I'm going to be just fine. So that's excellent news for this soon to be 65 year old man. I go on Medicare in October. So that officially makes me an old fart. That's for sure. All right. Enough of that. Enough banter. I hate YouTube videos that start with a bunch of banter. Don't get right to the point. So the point is the theology of Joseph Rotzinger. So as always, I don't like to script these things too tightly in advance. I like the conversation to be free flowing. So I usually open up with a very sort of open ended generic question, kind of sometimes puts the guest a little bit on the spot as to what to talk about. But if you could let, let's let's just just talk about what is the place of Joseph Rotzinger's theology sort of in the broad picture of 20th century Catholic theology, where would you locate his theology and, and how would you, in a sense, assess its importance in that location? I love that question because I've just been reviewing basically all of his biographies the past month, doing a book on sort of the essential Ratzinger and his hermeneutics. Uh, but yeah, I think when you locate him in the, the century, of course, and you think of the preparation for Vatican II, right? <laughs> and how he was kind of considered with people like de Lubach amongst the more quote progressives. And yeah. then after the council, all of a sudden he's an arch conservative. Uh, but to be sure, I think locating him it, between his preparatory texts for the council that he wrote for Cardinal Friggs, you know, that becomes sort of a tone setting moment for the council. His um, basically almost single-handedly brought about the demolition of the original text on revelation that was going to be quite unfortunate 
And through his speeches that Cardinal Friggs would read verbatim, he basically wrote the Ressourcement text that became Dei Verbum on a call to retrieve the fathers, right? And interpret yeah. the Bible in the heart of the church instead of just more of a propositional framework. Um, and then look after the council, I, I've thought about this on how to explain to my college students, because I write these books on Benedict's theology. And I, it dawned on me over the years that less and less they even know who the guy is. I mean, they're going to get to the point here where they're, they'll be born after he retired. Um, yeah. But the point with that, I guess, is you think of who has had a more positive influence on the church over the last 50 years until he retired, no one. I, I mean, uh, you think of, he helped write the direction for the conciliar texts. He guided many of the documents. He was the right-hand man of John Paul II trying to interpret it. And then as Pope, he continued that. And it's fascinating for me to have the privilege to study, right, from his time as a professor in the 50s, that he would continue same themes through his retirement and he still wrote after his retirement right and um so I, I don't see anybody even coming close in terms of the influence on what is going on and his breadth of knowledge right he he treated right. every topic i was thinking about how i basically focus on ratzinger in scripture but when you focus on ratzinger in scripture you focus on every single topic in theology because everything he did was infused with scripture and he treated every topic. So Absolutely. yeah, certainly there are figures like Delubach or Balthazar who had a huge influence on him. Uh, but uh, it, that's why I, I feel blessed to study him as you treat. The well, if you, yeah, like I said, if you put the whole package together and you look at him, yeah. not, you know, he, he was a theologian, but he was more than that. He was also like the, the court theologian of Vatican II in many, many ways, some of its more important documents. And then of course, head of the CDF, then of course, Pope himself. So yeah, it would be you'd be really hard pressed to find a more significant churchman uh in the world over the past, I would say, century, uh, than than Joseph Ross. Obviously, John Paul II's, you know, pontificate looms large. And he too was involved in the council. But I, I think a good I think your your point is is one well taken. Not that it these rankings are necessarily all that important, yeah. but but, uh, you know, it's, it's apples and oranges in some ways. Uh, but nevertheless, Ratzinger was important. I'm going to go back then to what you said, OK, that that he wrote certain things that, you know, Cardinal Friggs uh, then, you know, became the point man for and essentially got that original schema that the Holy Office had put forward or the preparatory commission had put forward. Uh, for what eventually became Dei Verbum, the document on Revelation in Vatican II. My friend, Father Robert Imbelli, identifies Dei Verbum as probably the most important document of the council. And he's probably right about that. Uh, but nevertheless, what, what exactly, I have not read the original schema that was rejected. Uh, I don't know if you have either. So once again, I don't want to yeah. put you on the spot. But what, yeah. what, what exactly was most objectionable? You said you said it would have been unfortunate had the church simply adopted that. Let's let's elaborate on that a little bit because it helps to specify Rotzinger's contribution. What was wrong with that original yeah. schema? Well, we, we're fortunate in our library to have the original Acta, the, the whole documents of Vatican Excellent. II in Latin, and then also you know I translated part of that, but um, I don't know him personally, but. Uh, Kamanchek. I, I don't know how to pronounce Eastern European names. But oh, Joseph Kamanchek, the expert you, on Vatican II. You may know II. him. 
Right. And he, well, he and he I have corresponded. Usually he's yeah. been sending me nasty emails about what I get wrong, but go <laughs> ahead. But he translated a lot of those into English. I don't think they're officially published, but they're available on the internet. And um, yeah. And so I've, I've read that thoroughly in the English and then consulted the Latin to check on some things. But yeah, the original schema for revelation was uh, de fontibus revelationis on the sources right. of revelation. Right. Um, so like all the documents of Vatican II, I mean, viewers may not know this. I'm, I'm sure you, you're aware, but that, you know, the, they came to the council and they wrote, I think it was 70 some schemata and they wanted the bishops to just rubber stamp them. The, the curia did. And, uh, and then Ratzinger wrote a speech for Cardinal Frings, which basically said, no, like this is not the right way. Uh, this is too one-sided. Right. It's not actually involving collegiality. And But with that particular schema, the real objection Ratzinger had to it, I think the biggest one was it had an overly propositional take on scripture as a sort of source of factoids that were revealed right. by God. And your job is just to take that and accept it. Um, whereas, you know, in Ratzinger's um, postdoc dissertation on, on Bonaventure, he took from Bonaventure over the years, the idea that revelation is the event of the, the, the communication of Christ to us. And so revelation is primarily the person of Christ. And then he would say at the council, things like, you know, scripture and tradition testify to this revelation. They are witnesses, but they aren't properly the revelation itself. The revelation is the person. And then he got that in the catechism, of course, too. So it was this this kind of really yeah. rigid and non, non-patristic view of things that he really had a problem with. So that's where the resource month theology came in, right? Get back to the original vision and then update it as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and so then, he, you know, he becomes a mover and a shaker with regard to the production of Dei Verabum, uh, which then recenters revelation around, you know, the notion of, of you know, the I, it, it's kind of like Balthazar makes a big deal about the old Alexandrian theology of what he calls the corpus triforme, the three, the three enfleshments of the word. And so there's the, the primary enfleshment of the word in Christ, and thus he is revelation as such. Then there's the enfleshment of the word in the Bible and the scriptures, which is a secondary enfleshment and is a privileged witness to the primary, the primary enfleshment. And then, of course, you have the enfleshment of the word in sacrament and church magisterium. Uh, and, and that then is a sort of home for, for, for it all. But it's, it's definitely a tertiary uh, enfleshment of that primary revelation. So and in none of that do you get this strict deductive thing with propositional truths as first principles based on the authority of God who cannot err. And then boom, 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 boom on, on, on yeah. down. And it's uh, ahistorical. I think that's, you know, part of the issue of the confrontation with modernity is realizing that there's a historical process here without completely relativizing everything. Yes. Yes. And that's the, but then that was always the charge. And we can get into this, the charge against, I mean, this goes all the way back to the modernist crisis crisis. And so, People who weren't necessarily, I mean, of course, what what was modernism is a vague term denoting this very vague intellectual movement 
that gains a certain specificity because of what gets condemned by Pius X. But whether or not those condemnations are really directed at specific people or not is hard to tell. But anyway, my point is, going all the way back to people like Blondel, you have this accusation, this insinuation that any emphasis on revelation as event and mystery in Christ, that that unfolds in a subjective appropriation, that's modernist. And and so then Ratzinger gets sucked up into this accusation as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. I, I, I was just reading Zewald's commentaries. I, I read his entire two volume biography, which is just a masterwork. I love uh, it. I love it. It's unbelievably good. And I read all of them, right? <laughs> I read Georgs. I, I've read, uh, gosh, um, Father, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but Elios, right? Those are uh, those, those are two. I recommend I them to my that. readers. Peter Seavolt, two volume. I tell you what, I learned so much from reading these things. And they're a fun read, aren't they? They are. You know, for a bookish guy that Ratzinger was and a very humble, introverted guy, you wouldn't know you could get such a fun story and, and all the intrigue. Even his, for most of us that don't do dissertations, how interesting could it be? Oh, he kind of failed his dissertation. Big whoop, you know. But there's a lot of drama. You can all relate to it, even though it's only some people that go through that process. Oh, yeah. And I mean, he he ran into, uh, you know, Herr Professor Schmaus, who didn't like his stuff, you know. And yeah, and I think that's what happened um, at after he made that intervention at the Council of Dei Verbum. Zewald was recounting how he was labeled a progressive after that. And e even though it was just ressourcement, there was, there was nothing too radical there, really. Although, interestingly, you know, he and Ronner, they ended up rewriting, I believe, the first chapter that became Dei Verbum. And then they go different ways, obviously, uh, after, yeah, the council. after the council. Uh, and then Zewald comments, it's one of the great ironies of church history that the guy who basically... <laughs> was the one of the most major players at Vatican II who didn't change should then be labeled a traitor to Vatican II and an arch conservative. Yeah. Um, so he takes up that question a lot in his books, like Milestones, one of the biographies, right? Per autobiographies where he'll say, you know, I was labeled a changer. Or there was a traumatic event that changed. But really, you when you read his entire corpus, as much as I've been able to, uh, I think no one has read every work of his. Um he didn't change, you know, it's, it's the same theology. No, he didn't. And, and I, yeah. and I absolutely want to come back to that. Cause I think that's a critical question. Uh, yeah. But before, you know, cause we're talking about Seawald's biography, a two volume of, of Pope Benedict, we mentioned earlier that, you know, all these 70 schemata were tossed out there uh, by the preparatory commission. And then they were just very standard neo-scholastic stuff. And the, the expectation was that the bishops would come rubber stamp the documents, go have pasta at Piazza Navona or something, and then fly home. In fact, Seawald makes the point that most of the bishops that were there and the, and the curial people just assumed this was going to be a three month long council, you know, maybe even a two month long council. And, and then it would be all over. So Ratzinger and his colleagues really kind of threw a monkey wrench into all of that absolutely yeah so uh, I, I love the yeah the bishops wanted to actually get to know one another right and but yeah. yeah oh yeah they wanted to get to know one another they didn't want to just be rushed into anything uh so yeah in other words why call a council to complete vatican one if you're not going to in fact 
do a real council if you're just going to rubber stamp things. But anyway, I want to come back to this notion now, okay, uh, of, you know, Ratzinger was apparently, this is the narrative. This is the narrative that is now out there in, in the minds of so many people. And it is that Ratzinger was very liberal at the council and he was part of the progressive camp at the council. He made common cause with people like Skilibex and Kung and Rahner at the council. But then after the council, he rejected the council and became arch conservative, the Panzer Cardinal, uh, and, and that something triggered him, maybe the, the student movement of 1968 or something in Europe. Uh, and so you get this this narrative of the two Ratzingers. But this is false, isn't it? Yeah. I, again, if you actually read his works, as you know, you, you can't say that. And if you read the documents of Vatican II, there's, there's no way you can say he betrayed them. I, I think, um, you know, obviously the whole spirit of Vatican II, there, there had to have been an undercurrent of people who were subversive or it, it wouldn't have popped out of nowhere. And this is before the council, right? I think part of what my wife and I talk about is you wouldn't have had the problems after the council if they weren't already there. Um, in the 50s. But um, it's interesting how he admits the following, and that is essentially that like our task, John Paul II, Benedict, was to retrieve the actual documents and thereby retrieve the tradition of the church. But there was some naivete amongst the, the correctly willed people about the changes and the ability to receive those changes properly without the what he later called a council of the media. Um, so yeah. I, 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 I think that's great that he admits that, you know, um, what we did was correct, but also that's not the way things work. And this is a different topic, but just to make sure I, we lay this one down too, with liturgy, especially, I, I, I mean, I've loved you've done so much great stuff on that, uh, having a proper balanced hermeneutic. He, he admitted, um, you know, that, when when 69 came out and that missile dropped, he, he was scandalized that you, you can't just out of the blue um, yeah. abrogate essentially what came before. And and therefore you have the whole. Uh, oh, shoot. What's the little. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the little document, the motu proprio, where Sumorum Pontificum. Oh, Sumorum Pontificum. Where he allowed, yeah. where he allowed it. Right. And, and I'm no rad trad, but I, I think he's absolutely right in that there were decisions made that uh, went against the actual intentions and you actually did a lot of harm. Um, so yeah, he, I don't think he changed. I think it was the parties and the powers that be. Yeah. see, that would be my, my take on it as well, that Bratzinger, I mean, all thinkers develop, right. To say yeah. that there was no development in his thought is probably wrong. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I did my dissertation on Balthazar and I read stuff he wrote in the 30s compared to what he wrote in the 80s. And there, even though there's a deep consistency in his thought, there's been development. OK, fine. Development. But to say that there was this sort of radical sea change in Rotsi, it went from being a liberal to an arch conservative is just uh, very contrary to what to what the man has actually written. In fact, I mean, he wrote, for example, Introduction to Christianity well before the events of the late 60s. I mean, I didn't, I think yeah. Introduction to Christianity came out in 67. All right. And, and so you already see an Introduction to Christianity, all of the main themes of, of, his, of his theology. And that happens before he was supposedly radicalized by the new liturgy or the student riots and that kind of stuff. 
Um, what you saw, rather, was the Concilium branch of the church, the Rahner branch. They're the ones who moved even further left, which then, of course, caused Ratzinger, De Lubach, uh, Balthazar, and to a certain extent, Walter Kamu, um, kind of a, a, as a response. But anyway, I don't, I don't want to dominate the conversation here, uh, but to corroborate, I think that, that that's true. I mean, Seavalt does make the point also in, his, in this biography to go back to your thing about Ratzinger stating that, that there's a certain naivete Ratzinger. There's a quote and I don't know exactly where, where Ratzinger says we were so intent on getting the theology right that we didn't pay enough attention to the potential pastoral fallout that might happen from all of this. OK, wow. and so there is, I, I, you know, in fact, I've written some blog posts to talk about what I call the double naivete of the council. And I don't want to get, toot my own horn and go into that, but I think you're right. There, there was this, this sociological, let's put it that way, cultural naivete about how toxic the culture was and just how divisive. In other words, there were these divisions in the 50s before the, the council happened, but maybe Ratzinger and others underestimated how deep the divisions actually were. Yeah, yeah, I think that's safe to say, really. And uh, you see the parallels playing out today too i mean even on a parish level um gosh i don't get too particular but you know let's say you put new music in you all of a sudden put in chant which i'm all in favor of right well people if they're not pedagogically prepared and if there's no culture of that you you can't just slap that down out of nowhere and expect it to take uh i i've been privy to i've participated in such mistakes before um yeah. So it, it plays out over and over. And then now you're seeing the opposite direction, the, the naivete of you think you're just going to outlaw the old form and that's going to work. Um, but yeah, one interesting thing I find in all of this is, and I don't know, I, you, you've been to Rome a lot more than I have recently. Now with the seven younger kids, I can't go anywhere except the United States. So we're rediscovering natu- national parks, uh, which is good. Um, but in Rome, I still know people who, see Ratzinger is this quadrato, the square. And he's so he's still so conservative in their view. It's so fascinating that they still maintain that narrative. Um, whereas in America, I've actually found more and more in teaching the last 15 years, especially the last seven or 10, that you start to see it. Oh, no, you know, actually, he's always been a liberal all along um oh yeah germans right so that's fascinating that the reason i went into ratzinger scholarship because i was a an overzealous smacker down of heresies in college and then now you see the opposite right um so it's very interesting and ironic really that the guy um has been perceived as such so that's why i enjoy working on it right helping Set the record straight almost. Well, let's focus on that a bit, because I think, you know, a lot of people are in this narrative uh, and one of those binary camps. And it it is indicative of the fact that a lot of the noise that comes from the American church comes from those binaries, the far left and the far right. And a lot of the noise about Ratzinger and even John Paul comes from the, 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 the newly empowered radical traditionalists in the church. Who, who view Ratzinger as this crypto modernist, a sort of veiled modernist. And that if you peel back the layers of Ratzinger's theology, what you get is lib- a liberal, a theological liberal. 
what 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 causes what do you, what causes them to think that? Well, that was honest. I think part of it is it's a extension of a reaction against the present pontificate. I, I think yes. it's just going back. I think that's at bottom one of the more key reasons for it. Um, as one of our mutual friends uh, says, uh, you have a race to ideological purity right now. And I, I think it's just easier to go back and yes. also ding him. And then, of course, you have, did any of the recent popes or ecclesiastical figures perfectly deal with the abuse crisis? Probably not. Um, so that that's a more of an excuse, I think, though, for these, these folks. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that when I uh, write on Ratzinger and you put in a Google search for some topic, you know, what are people saying about this? I often find that some of Ratzinger's greatest moments or when you're reading an SSX, SSPX website and they think he's a heretic, it's where he's actually at his most brilliant because he's identified yeah. the core of the issue and kind of realized, okay, this particular teaching had a time-bound element to it, as a CDF would say at the time, but here's the permanent core of it. Um, but yeah, so at, at bottom, I think that's a lot of what's going on anyway. It's, it's easy yeah. to do. And what I end up telling people a lot of times now is, Okay, I hear you. I see if you peel back, it's not the same thing that was said in 1940 um, exactly, but you really do have to become a state of contest if you want to go down that route. If you want to be consistent, um, you know, sure. you've got to reject pretty far back. And yeah, actually, I mean, I can't uh, who this was, there was a great, oh my gosh, comment by somebody at the council. I, I, it's just in the back of my mind now, but. The substance of it went like this. It was that a lot of the anti-modernism was just completely unaware that what they considered ancient was no older than their grandma. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. And that's where resource mount comes in, I think, is to help that. Absolutely. I mean, they mistake the uh, the sort of neo-scholastic post-Tridentine sort of framework that one sees, especially in the 19th and early 20th centuries, as as the perennial teaching of the Catholic Church, and you know? so, but I want to come back to the to the sort of uh, the causes of this belief that Ratzinger was uh, a, a liberal, a modernist, and I think you're right. I mean, if you're going to buy into that whole hog, though, he's a hair, a full blown hair. You're going to have to end up sede vacantist. But I think you're right. I mean, I, I I like to say that what you see among so many rad trads today, I think, are simply, I don't think most of them really are rad trads. I think what they are are angry folks who have been red-pilled by Pope Francis, uh, that these are formerly people who were like big supporters of John Paul and Benedict, who once Francis comes along, they say, okay, we've put up with enough nonsense. Enough is enough. All right. If yeah. this is what Vatican II leads to, then we don't want anything to do with Vatican II. It, and then they go all scorched earth. OK, the liturgy, yeah. the teaching. We just need to go back to 1955 before even Pius XII started tinkering with the Holy Week liturgy. I mean, this is the, yeah. like the rush yeah. to purity. Like you say, you almost have to go back to Pascendi and Pius X before you find a pope that they think hasn't been somewhat tainted. Yeah. They'll even point to Casti Canubi of Pius XI is already beginning the squishy movement of approving natural family planning and things like that, you know, uh, which they yeah. think is simply contradictory reception by a different name. So this is this is a whole mentality, an ecclesial framework that I think is largely just, as my friend Kale Zeldin says, a psychological coping mechanism. And you hate to psychologize somebody's 
somebody's motivations. But the, the, the theology that they espouse is so simplistic that and it's put forward by erstwhile intelligent people that one has to search for some sort of deeper, I think, motivation going on yeah. here. And I, you know, the psychological element actually helps me to have a little bit more mercy to realize, you know what, I get yeah. it, people. Uh, I have a little bit more patience than I used to with that stuff because I, I totally get it. Um, but yeah, is that the path you want to go down? I think sometimes if you force people's hands, they'll choose the wrong hand, but at least they know, like, here's what you're really doing with this. Yeah, and see, that's my path. I'm sorry, I interrupt you. Go ahead. Finish no, your I was, you know, I, I was going to say, you know, talking scripture. There's some very specific examples you can get into uh, of how I get it with them, and yet your alternative is fideism. Yeah, so. it really is, and uh, you know, so I do not support rad tradism, but I think that the old. I, in other words, I support Benedict's Samorum Pontificum because I think. Samorum Pontificum represented exactly what you're talking about. It was an attempt to truly understand the the ongoing pain, liturgically speaking, of a lot of Catholics around the world who were craving the old liturgy, or at least some iteration of a more reverent, as they like to say, liturgy, than what you get in a typical parish. And so I think Benedict was at his pastoral best. I attend an Anglican ordinariate parish, to be honest, because of the beauty of the liturgy. And that is also Benedict at his pastoral best. He did. Yeah. I think that's his lasting legacy was Sumorum and then uh, allowing the Anglicans to bring their liturgy. in. so, yeah, if Traditionalist Custodes, even though I don't care for most traditionalists, Pope Francis, I think, was ill-advised pastorally speaking. The ironies is. You think about the church's anti-modernist neurosis, as Ratzinger called it, it actually caused a counter reaction. A lot of this liberalism is probably just a, a child rebelling against their parents for being overly overbearing, right? Um, and now you're getting yes. the opposite. You couldn't have made a better script to have a rise of radical traditionalism than what's happened <laughs> here. Um, but uh, well, yeah, yeah. Especially I mean, from a pope that's, and I don't want to get into trashing Pope Francis. He yeah. has strengths and weaknesses, but this is a pope, and I commend him for this, who speaks a lot about parhesia, openness, dialogue, going to the peripheries, all voices being heard, everyone welcome, except for you guys on the right. You guys were going to exclude from the conversation. That I find really inconsistent and puzzling about this pontificate. Yeah, and like I, I always try to keep positive as well. And I don't even bring this stuff up most of the time with students, but and I, it because really it's it's like a like a president in some ways. There's the office and there's the man. You got to distinguish, right? And but yeah, it, clearly um, there have been some issues that have just radicalized things. I think a lot of what's going on is related to that. Um, so you know what you yeah. got to do. I think you you go back to the heart of things and. And that's at Ratzinger and John. Paul yeah. And so to bring it back to Ratzinger, this is to go back to my original question. This is why he now gets tagged by the far right of the church as a liberal modernist heretic, because he's just sort of, I think, gotten swept up in this rush to purity, a return to old old timey Catholicism. And he's sort of gotten just thrown out with the bathwater. But by the same time, let's look at the, you, you said that, you know, people in Rome who view Ratzinger as this square. 
All right. And it was like this very conservative dude who sort of betrayed the council and so on. What? Because I think this is important as to what's going on here. Why do they think that? In other words, what specific aspects of Ratzinger's views or the positions he took on things? Let's be very specific. What is their theological objection to Ratzinger as a supposedly conservative theologian? You know, I'm much more familiar with conservative objections to him because that's what I deal with the most the past yeah. 15, 20 years. Um, so as far as the liberal objections, it's, it's usually just more of a vague thing. I mean, but if there's one issue that, just in my limited one person experience comes to mind. It was Dominus Jesus. I was just going to say that. Yes. Um, that's the one I get. I mean, in, in fact, when I first came to Benedictine, this is here back in the States, but in, in 09, I, I had a student or two who thought that document was from the devil, you know, because for, for viewers who don't know, that's the one where he, he just reaffirmed Nostra Aetate of Vatican II on the universal salvific significance of Christ. He's the only savior and all good and other traditions, religious traditions derives from him. It was nothing new. Um, but I, the fact that he reaffirmed and clarified just like he did with women's ordination or lack thereof and so many other things that were already taught, he puts a point to it and then he really got some enemies. So I think that's the one that most people in my experience brought up you know uh, and i mean liberation theology i don't hear you know that was a big one i i don't hear a lot of complaints about that i it goes back to again a misconstrual all other religions are completely wrong ratzinger is saying which is not at all what he's saying of course no no and i think that's there are some and this is my point there's some caricatures going on simply because there's an ulterior motive here they all in other words, if your ulterior motive is to overturn centuries old, millennia old Catholic teaching on things like women's ordination or contraception or the absolute centrality of Christ for salvation, you're going against then changes in moral theology that involve proportionalist moral theories. You're going against changes in Christology that want to view Christ and embed him with a pluralism of religions model of, of revelation where God speaks in different languages to different people. If you're going to be against women's ordination, then of course, then you run contrary to the entire thrust of, of an egalitarianism between the sexes in, in modern society and, 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 and so on and so on down the line. In other words, I think that what 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 you see, therefore, and I think it's true of, of of certain trends still going on in the church right now, maybe even more so, is that it's necessary for them to construct this caricature of Ratzinger as someone who betrayed the council, who was once liberal like we are, who has then become an arch conservative. It's necessary to construct that narrative so as to position Ratzinger as an outlier and thus to marginalize him so that you can then plow ahead as well as you see now in so many prelates saying yeah. well, we can finally we can finally now with Pope Francis or and others implement the Second Vatican Council. It's what I call the narrative of the council interrupted. You had the council, yeah. the reforms kick in, you got Paul the Sixth, then you get like this 35 years of this retrograde nonsense from JP2 and Benedict who hated the council. And now we can finally get back to the council. So you have you have to attack Ratzinger in order to push that narrative. Yeah, not right to me. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, of course, the whole hermeneutics, what he called hermeneutic of discontinuity, right? I find it interesting in Ratzinger. Uh, okay. Maybe I miss a text here, but 
A lot of times you hear the term hermeneutic of continuity as the contrast to hermeneutic of discontinuity, but no. of course his his term is really renewal and reform, hermeneutic of renewal, of reform, comma, of renewal. And I think that's part of what makes people uncomfortable from a more traditional side with him is he's willing to admit accidental, to use Thomistic phrase, elements of discontinuity. Uh, there is development, right? And and so one of the things I find difficult, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this sort of thing and your knowledge of how to deal with it and your encounters with it. But like in the biblical sphere that I spend a lot of my time in, um, Ratzinger, you know, um, I think it was Meyer, I forgot which of his professors uh, was basically banned from teaching for several years because he had held to Mark and priority, right? Which is almost the universal scholarly consensus that Mark, as we have it, wrote the first gospel. And, and Benedict was so balanced. He said it was never an issue of faith. You can believe what you want. But it, it's fascinating that when you go back to some of the 19 aughts declarations of the Pontifical Biblical Commission, that they kind of almost require you to hold certain things that are now well known to be probably not correct with regard to details of biblical authorship and dating. Um, but things like that, I, I kind of, on the one hand, I get why people say, oh, shoot, Ratzinger's a liberal because he changed this. Um, and I can see why, from a liberal perspective, you might say he's too square because he's not going to whole hog endorse our opinion. Um, again, if you don't endorse it entirely, you're against us, you know. So there's so many examples of very concrete things he does that you could see irritating both sides. And, and another biographer said something beautiful. It was, you got the impression that Ratzinger was always addressing concrete issues and in a simple, straightforward way that was always meant to be spiritually relevant. Uh, and so that's another great thing about what he's doing is there's always a real topic instead of just vague principles yeah no i i agree uh i i think this is a, a terribly important point i mean broad benedict ratzinger said i mean the proper hermeneutic is the hermeneutic of reform which involves continuity in a broad sense of the with the with the the main channel of the tradition but that might involve ruptures and certain discontinuities with more recent developments that have departed somewhat from that main channel and have gotten sidetracked in very various sort of dis distortions and tributaries. So there's a need to do it, it's more like there's a need for a certain pruning and, yeah. and 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 a sort of refocusing on what is most central and most necessary. And and, and but that is I, I'm very fond of a book by Monsignor Thomas Guarino who, who taught at Seton Hall University. I don't know if he still does or the seminary. I'm not certain which one, but it's a great book. It's called The Disputed Teachings of Vatican II. And I think it's a great book for highlighting what it is that Ratzinger's hermeneutic actually is, because what, what Monsignor Guarino does in that book is he points out where Vatican II, for example, was discontinuous with certain elements of, for example, the three munera are functions of a bishop. Do they come directly from the pope or do they come by divine right with his ordination from God? Well, two of them come from divine right by God, but that contradicts what Pius XII said. It contradicts the entire history of the ultramontanist post-Vatican one trend of the papacy. Likewise, with regard to religious freedom, likewise, yeah. and so on, that there are discontinuities. Only an idiot would say that there aren't discontinuities. 
And so what are you going to do with those? So Ratzinger says, Benedict says, well, we, we just have to be big boys here and put on our big boy pants and admit that there's yeah. discontinuities there. And what do you do? What are you going to do with that now? Are you going to run to the hills and say the council was therefore heretical? Or, or are you going to do what the liberals say, which is, well, because we changed on X, Y, Z, therefore we can change on anything. You know, and, and so yeah. Ratzinger said, you're both wrong, all right? Just admitting that the church may have been wrong about a few things here and there in some minor ways isn't isn't a wholesale selling of the farm. I think I probably read that book after seeing you quoted at some point. Uh, but yeah, that Guarino was great. Uh, you know, it's as, as much as I am informed by communio theology, it's, I have a colleague who jokes, who's a very, very dedicated Thomist and says, you know, if I scratch you, though, Ramid, you bleed Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and my, and because uh, again, I, I always try to keep a dialogue of ancients and moderns. Got to keep. You always have to keep Aquinas in the conversation. And I, I just think it's funny how Ratzinger never quoted Aquinas on this point, but it's just basic hylomorphism. It, it's it, it's it's basic Aristotelian principles of the substance perdures, and the accidents can change. And as Newman says, who Ratzinger deeply loved. Uh, to live is to change and change often. And I, so, yeah, I think that's part of the admission that he makes. That a lot of people don't want to admit things changed. I mean, religious freedom, yeah. you mentioned, right? Shoot. I mean, yeah. uh, the, the the syllabus of errors pretty much condemns it. And then Dignitatis Humanae declares it a right. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, And you can, you can contextualize the previous teaching against religious freedom all you want. Oh, they're just responding to French laïcité and secularité. They're just responding to the anti-clericalism of the French Revolution and the outflowing of false notions of religious freedom from that and so on. Yeah, that's all true. That was the context of the papal condemnations they viewed. But you can go back further than the French Revolution and still find a lot of church teaching justify. I mean, exerge domine, you know, we can burn heretics at the stake. And Luther's wrong about that. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's some reversals going on there, you know, and, and, and you just have to admit that. Uh, and, and and figure out what what to do with it. But I, I like you bringing up Aquinas now because I think this this is an important point. Um, because Ratzinger's theology is embedded in this controversy because it's very I think it is true. You can correct me if I'm wrong. It, I don't see a lot of influence of Thomas Aquinas and Ratzinger's theology. Do you? Yeah, um, you know, not really. And yet, there's some interesting points. Good, good. That, Go with this um, now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, as time went on, I think he gained a greater appreciation for him because it was really just the manualist Baroque Thomism he was reacting against, right? So when you have people who come out with a completely deductive theology where everything's pretty much predetermined and it's ahistorical and it doesn't take into account development of doctrine, uh, it doesn't account for the sometimes conditioned moments like you said this is written during the french revolution and that explains part of what's going on uh they just don't admit that then you can see his reaction against Thomism. uh so then what i did with biblical interpretation is i, I kind of dug deeply several years back into his relation with aquinas and he, he ends up proposing aquinas as almost the model for how to do biblical exe biblical exegesis interestingly and I, I i've done a lot of work on jean-pierre torel the great Oh, yeah. um, translated some stuff of his 
hopefully will get published here before terribly long on essays that he did related to this topic. But uh, one of the things Torell shows is that Aquinas uh, is basically a, a, a proto Ratzinger on this point that he took every care he possibly could to understand the original languages. He didn't know Hebrew and Greek, but he tried and he, he would find people who did kind of know it and quote them to like enumerate how many times this or that term appears. He would um, take from such a wide variety of authors, right? From pagan Greeks to Muslims, to Jews and Maimonides, right? Um, that you see this later encapsulated by Ratzinger. I and mean, when you compare him to his contemporaries, Aquinas, he, he, he's just almost night and day uh, to, to many of them for how he's willing to look at the historical context. And so I think Aquinas or Ratzinger learned to appreciate that over time. Um, but to be sure, he was influenced more by Bonaventure and Augustine, those streams of the tradition than Aquinas. So uh, it's been pointed out, like, he was the first one to translate I think it was on love, uh, a tract of Aquinas into German. Like that was part of his assignment, right? As a student yeah, and yeah. things. But it's not an overt influence that he had on him. Yeah. And, and you know, for example, Hans Urs von Balthasar is also accused of being anti-Thomas or whatever. And yet Balthasar quotes Aquinas more than any other author. So it, it's a question of Who's Aquinas are we talking about here? And and the entire it's certainly true historically, to put it in context, that the resource Mont camp was reacting against, which, you know, right, you know, the, the Baroque Catholic uh, scholasticism that you're talking about, as well as just in general, the Baroque Catholicism that sort of flows out of the of, out of that mindset. But it is simply wrong then to say, you know, oh, Rod, Joseph Ratzinger was was anti-Aquinas. Um because I don't I, I don't think that he was. But I think this is nevertheless an, an important point in, 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 in a sense in doing in doing battle against that kind of Baroque scholasticism. Could we not at, at least say, as some of my more Thomistic friends would say, that there was a certain eclipse of Aquinas that took place in the resource Mont camp that, in a sense, wrongly marginalized making Aquinas sort of the, the central figure of theological study, in a sense, thus diminishing him, and that maybe now is a time for resource month thinkers to go back and to see in what way their theology is probably aided and abetted by Aquinas rather than dragged down by it. Interesting. See, it's tough for me because I studied mainly Thomism under Thomists, um, so I never kind of left that that's always been part of my my shtick. Um, but well, I then guess... let me stop you there for a second. Would it be wrong? Is it simply historically wrong then to say that Thomism was eclipsed in the Catholic Academy? Maybe I'm wrong about that. Gosh, I'd have to go back and think about individual resource authors. You know, um, I, I don't think I can make a judgment off the cuff about that. But I, and this is part of my naivete. I, I always assume that they're on the same page. You know, I think grad school. You're studying with Thomas and you're studying where Father Fessio, uh, God bless him, you know, a student of Ratzinger. I just assume they all went together because yeah. my professors were <laughs> diverse in that regard. Um, so I, I never even occurred to me until recent years that there would not be Thomas Aquinas in the picture. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it was eclipsed by 
some people, but uh, you mentioned Balthazar. Certainly, you can't argue that it was a clip. He was eclipsed in Balthazar, and although no, not at all is, is quoted less by Ratzinger, he's not altogether absent. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I sit on that. Well, and 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 I would say about seventy five percent of Henry de Lubach's career was an attempt to show what it was that Aquinas said about nature and grace. I mean, let's face it, all those all those debates between say de Lubach and Lagrange of the mid 20th century were uh, they revolved around the, the proper retrieval of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, but there is this narrative that has emerged that because of the ascendancy of theologians like Joseph Ratzinger, and if you read Ratzinger's theology, there's very little explicit mention of Thomas Aquinas, uh, that in a sense, they've set up this narrative where, and, and so all these sort of new Thomists are not rad trads, they're not liberals, they're not resource, they're Thomists but a certain chip on their shoulder, Thomas, lately, that that have developed a certain added, they got tooed, let's put it that way, they got tooed towards Balthazar, Ratzinger, and these guys. Do you see that, or am I just... I stuff? have seen that. That is really annoying to me. Yeah, like, I was at a conference a couple of years back giving a paper, and someone thought they defeated my paper's argument by giving an ad hominem against Balthazar. And I just said, I like Balthazar. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm just going to emote. If you're going to emote to me, I'm going to emote back to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, um, there's no argument there. Uh, but yeah, I have seen that. This skepticism, again, from Thomas towards Ratzinger, and, and even, I guess, some more resource Thomism. I've heard complaints against Cervase Pinkers and others. I, I just don't get that. Um, yeah. And now, here's something that may be driving part of it is. I think it is entirely safe to say that Ratzinger and Ressourcement folks, correct me if you have better knowledge, I think this movement did pretty much ignore <laughs> all of the Thomistic commentators of the Baroque period. Yeah. So you take Suarez, Banez, I think those are just completely forgotten. And that's why I think that there's a resource or a, a Thomistic movement to retrieve these guys, and probably rightly so. Uh, but I, I, that, that might be right. I think it's worth knowing what those guys say, but I think at least on Ratzinger's part, he deliberately ignored them. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, I think of my friend I've never met. I mean, it was my sort of social media friend, Matthew Minard, Dr. Minard, who mm -hmm. teaches, you know, he's, he's written a lot about this where that there is a need in a sense to retrieve people like a Suarez or, and because there, there are valuable things in there still, you know, you, we can, we can lament what Baroque scholasticism became in certain, certain ways. Nevertheless, there, there are, it's part of the tradition too, right? I mean, Baroque Catholicism is part of the church's intellectual tradition, uh, scholasticism. And so why not retrieve the, the valuable elements therein as well? So I, I think that's probably true. And, and and fair enough. So it, it's good to acknowledge lacunae where they exist. Uh, the only troubling thing to me is when people then say, "Well, Thomas is the source." Yeah, These that's guys the are problem. The interpreters, and that's all you really need. Of course, Thomas would be the last person to say that sort of thing. Um, well, exactly. Let's let's just use the classic example then. Okay, the great debates still raging on the issue of nature and grace, whether we are, you know God is our final the final end even of our natural 
nature, not the supernatural bits added on or whatever you want to call it. So that's the raging debate. And so much of the debate then focuses on what did Thomas Aquinas say? What what is the proper? Now, I was interviewing Robert Barron, Bishop Barron, about this, and I agree with him when he said, look, at, at the very least, we may perhaps we should just say that Aquinas can be interpreted in both ways. That he that this it's a bit anachronistic to try and impose our current debates back on Aquinas and to seek some sort of clarity from Aquinas on these issues because they weren't his issues. That's not what he was debating. And, and yeah. so it could just be also, even if we decided that Aquinas did agree with you know De Lubach or agreed with Lagrange, Aquinas can be wrong. And so yeah. the, the the central focus that it's got to be Aquinas, Aquinas, Aquinas is missing the deeper question of where does Aquinas fit in the broad trajectory of, of the tradition. He's an extremely important person in that trajectory, but he's not the only person. And the deeper question is, what is the true theological position that we should take here in the light of the whole tradition, and not just a constant argument about what it was that Aquinas said? Yes, exactly. And, and there's resource model. Let's go back to what did Pseudonisius say? What did John Damascus say? And, and you know, Irenaeus and, and yeah. One great thing about Aquinas is you you get a lot of those guys, but you also need to read them directly as well. And, and actually, that touches upon something about Aquinas and Ratzinger, a point of contact, where I, I think, you know, to the extent that Aquinas has been eclipsed, that's a good debate. But I think I always say a Catholic has to be a Thomist in some way because Aquinas yes. is just encapsulated in the tradition. And I think if you're going to be a non state of Aquinas, you have to be. Uh, a, a Ratzinger person to some extent because he is synthesizing more than anybody else the tradition up to his point um and, and so that's like both figures have that almost unique significance and then that you don't oh, sure. see even in, in parallel greats like Bonaventure or John Paul in the modern period that these guys are both central synthesizers and and that Aquinas in his day was considered to be a dangerous thinker for yeah. introducing the atheism of an Aristotle, you know, yes. in, in into the, the largely Platonic matrix of the fathers. And how dare he yeah. do this and the troubles he faced at the University of Paris and in Paris, you know. Uh, and, and so, you know, he's just a, a fascinating historical figure uh, in and of himself. And certainly. I think, you know, and it's not, but, but you raise a valid point here. One of the things I like to say to people frequently is that, you know, resource month theology is actually a variant form of Thomism because you can't be a Catholic theologian and not in some sense be a Thomist or, or, or at least to take Aquinas very, very, very seriously and as a central interlocutor and in, in whatever theology. Like my friend Tracy Rowland wrote the book Catholic Theology, and I like to yeah. point out that in the middle part of that book, she identifies no fewer than 17 different forms of Thomism, you know, wow. in, in, in the modern church. Uh, and I would locate Resourcement thinkers as, as one of those Thomistic schools of thought, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that's a great text. She did a church of service by writing that one. And yeah, I, I kind of think of my approach as fitting within the Resourcement Thomism, right? You're retrieving Aquinas as a source. You're taking the best. You purify any weaknesses. That's Ratzinger's project. Yeah. Um, no, he missed a few things. He didn't know about the new world. Um, but by golly, when you look down to it, uh, I'm thinking of an article I assign in my Church and World Religions class here at Benedictine. It's Torell on Aquinas and non-Christians. And you look at it, and you're like, this guy sounds like Vatican II. 
he's talking about how God's desire, as Timothy says, to save all people is such that if there's a wilderness child living amongst the animals, he would he would send an angel to that person if need be. Uh, like Gaudium et Spes says, God offers all men in, in, his way, no, in a way known to him alone to participate in the Paschal mystery. And that's already in Aquinas. Um, yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, that uh, we one could read Aquinas and retrieve him for an entire lifetime of in the same way that you would do a Balthazar or any of them, uh, because there are so many lost nuggets like that one that one finds in Aquinas. Uh, and you know, a, a nice little trick that I like to do is to sometimes quote Thomas Aquinas without telling people that I'm quoting Thomas Aquinas, where Aquinas sounds quite resourcement and quite modern and quite, quite Vatican II, and then say, oh, who do you think said that? And they'll say, oh, that's probably Balthazar or Delubach or Ratzinger. And I say, oh, that's actually Thomas Aquinas, you know, and uh, that's, that's uh, really something. Actually, but, but you know, we're all, we've been at this for almost an hour now. Before, so before we get out of here, I want to move on to Joseph Ratzinger's approach to scripture, because uh, uh, that's actually kind of what prompted this. More than a, a neutral friend of ours emailed me and said, "You need to talk to Matthew Ramage about uh, B sixteen on on scripture and scriptural exegesis, because he's doing some interesting things on that." So let me just toss that over to you. What what is what is interesting about Ratzinger's approach to scriptural exegesis? I think it is his complete, honest boldness to address whatever challenge there is head on. You know, he's he is as some have said a radical questioner in that he goes back to the radix, the root of the problem, tries to get to the core of it, and he's just so convinced of the truth of the Catholic faith that he's not afraid. Um, so many people don't want to actually address, uh, say, historical criticism. Like I did a little book on Ratzinger. I kind of put Benedict and Bart Ehrman, uh, a secular historical critic, up with each right. other. And said, let's put these guys in dialogue. Let's see how the Catholic tradition fares. And yeah, I've preloaded it, right? I'm Catholic, I admit. I already know what the answer is I want to give. But I, I think he stands up quite well. But just uh, since I mentioned the Gospels, uh, Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar. Uh, he, he does some great work, but some people just say, ah, he's the devil, right? You can't read Bart Ehrman. No, Benedict, he doesn't quote Bart Ehrman, but he quotes people like him. And he quotes people that are, even, are arguably more radical, like Rudolf Boltmann, you know. And so he'll engage all those sources and admit when they have a point. Um, so I, I know uh, there was a headline when, the third volume of his Jesus trilogy came out was the infancy narratives, right? The little one that came out last because yeah. he thought he might die before he got to it. He's like, well, it's not as crucial as the main ministry. So let's save this. And he then he didn't die. So he did it. Well, anyway, there was a headline Benedict ruins Christmas. Cause he said stuff like, you know, the Magi, is it historical? And he, he concluded, it's not essential that the narrative from Matthew on that point be essential but based upon the sources available, I think he ends up quoting Delubach. But anyway, the point was, and unless you prove otherwise, it's safest to assume it is historical. But the fact that he would even take seriously right. the possibility that the Magi story was a Haggadic midrash that was in, in some ways it's so close to the book of Numbers um, that you wonder whether it's it's made up by Matthew and, and and things like that that he just took extremely seriously and and things like the temptations of Christ where he'll say that was a vision that 
he'll just come out and say, I don't think Christ was taken up to a place that saw every place on earth. Right. Right. And, and so I appreciate that. Um, you know, the most recent book I did was on Benedict science, evolution and Genesis and his willingness to say, look, Adam was archetypal. Uh, this is not a scientific narrative of human origins, even though I get people will come back and quote church fathers. And I understand that I tell them they all thought Adam was a concrete historical being who arose in the Middle East when scientifically that's just not what happened. So the fact that Ratzinger is willing to take those things on and then still seek the essential core, like the vision, the kernel of the teaching is what distinguishes him from almost anybody out there these days. Oh, I, th I think that is so true. And I, I remember when I first started reading Ratzinger uh, on scriptural things, thinking to myself, wow, he gives Boltmann a lot more latitude and a lot more favorable space than I would. And I was shocked at times at how open he was to all of the currents of modern scripture scholarship. And I think the reason why he was is because he was so profoundly scriptural. In the yeah. sense, he was immersed in the scriptures. His whole theology emerges out of the scriptures. And so he simply had this voracious appetite for reading everything he could from the various scholars of scripture as to what their views were. And then he sifted from all of that a real coherent vision of his own that, that is just breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, and and I, it, the capstone of which then is, is sort of his three volumes, you know. Yeah. Jesus of Nazareth, you know. Um, so I, I, I think all of that is true. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, that's that's, you know, you mentioned Bart Ehrman, too. That's a good point. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing Lewis Ayers on Wednesday. I've interviewed him before. In our previous interview, we were discussing Lewis Ayers. I mean, we were discussing Bart Ehrman. And Lewis said, well, you know, I know Bart. He's a good guy. Bart Ehrman. He's a good guy. He's wrong about X, Y, Z, but he's also right about X, Y, Z. So I think the, the better scholars and Lewis certainly is a great scholar. And I think you've nailed it. And I'm going to turn it back to you. They're so convicted of their faith and of the truth of Scripture. Then they're able to, in a sense, suspend it a bit and yeah. to then look at look at other points of view with fresh eyes in order to bring it back to this this deep and profound conviction that they have. You have it's it's a gift that you develop over time of, of it keeps you from being defensive is the point I'm groping to make here. No, that's exactly the point why he's such a, a model. And yeah, as you know, Giussani would say, there's a rischio, there's the risk there. You're putting your life on the line. Yeah, you you're you have to admit you might be changed by this, and God forbid, they might destroy your faith if you read these guys. But wow, do you want to have your head in the sand? You know, it, what's what's the way to right. live? And that's where I uh, I really enjoy, even though it can be annoying at times, teaching with Ratzinger because. It has people raise these questions, and my only hope is that, well, if I raised it in a context of faith, and when they get out there in the workplace, if they ever get out of their bubble, and they go and encounter these challenges, they'll actually have a hermeneutic that's confidently right. addressing these questions. Yeah, I remember when I taught Christology back when I was still a real person and had a job, uh, I actually had my students in my Christology class read uh, the Jesus Seminar and John Dominic Crossan. Uh, and say, okay, I think they're right about this, but here's where they really go off the rails. And, and, and then they would read some other things. And then I would 
my role as a teacher was to provide them then with a proper theological matrix for making sense of all of that stuff. Um, but I, I, nothing is worse than, I, so to bring it back to Ratzinger, the thing that I most appreciate about him, and it's something I appreciated about Balthazar as well, there's not a defensive element in their theology at all. No, no. It, you, you go out of your way almost to compliment um, the interlocutor. And I, I did a text on largely Nietzsche and Ratzinger, and that was interesting. To, I went through his corpus and kind of combed every time he encountered Nietzsche. And especially his his claim that Christianity poisoned eros, right, and all the commandments. And oh yeah, the, yeah. The genealogy of morals, basically, it was Ratzinger's concern that we invented Christianity as a power play, and he takes it seriously. And 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 um, and it, I think this comes across helpful when you're like, well, sometimes we are very Nietzsche, and sometimes I'm only saying this as a defense mechanism. And, and Ratzinger is willing to admit that sort of thing that, sure, we're not perfect. Uh, Nietzsche has some point there, but ultimately he'll go on to argue, right, that it's a yeah. warped form of Eros that, that Nietzsche is critiquing and so on and so forth. That's true. And de Lubach was the same. De Lubach in the drama of atheist humanism dealt with yes. Nietzsche in a, in a very laudatory, straightforward way, but said, I mean, here's where Dostoevsky is better. And, you know, he sees that Dostoevsky sees the same things Nietzsche does, but Dostoevsky goes deeper and is therefore correct. And so this is this is a hallmark of all resource mont theology that in some ways is an ethos that's very different from the, the Baroque scholasticism, which really was reactionary, defensive, yeah. arguing against something, you know, the French Revolution or the Enlightenment or certain elements of this of modern evolutionary theory, whatever. Bing, oh. bing, 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 bing. And, and and that sort of a scorched earth thing just doesn't fly anymore. Uh, I, I really think this is psychologizing, but my impression of things is when you feel like you're a persecuted minority and you're fighting against something, that galvanizes you. It, it is tough to be, be like, okay, well, we're going to sit back for a minute and maybe take the best of these guys and gradually kind of answer them uh even though it's kind of vague and i'm not a fan of the phrase pope francis talks about accompaniment a lot and again it just seems like kind of a cheesy word to me for some reason but when you when you break it down i think you'd have to break it down to ultimately cum pane like bread bread with i, sure. I believe would be the root of that right like it's not a cheesy kind of walking with but it's you actually get to know people you gradually work with them you're not going to answer them on the internet and, and save the world uh, in one post, but um, that that's something that that it takes more, can we say, maturity to realize this is a long game, and you're not going. You might convert people by getting them all gung ho against some heresy, but it it if you look at what Christ did, I don't think that's the path. Uh, that was the way no. these guys operated. I think that's yeah, that's in blue box through and through. Yeah, it's important to fight heresy. It's important to express proper doctrine, both in terms of moral theology and other forms of theology. Uh, but that is just one small part of theology. And the overall theological project, the role of the theologian in the church, and we see this clearly even in various ecclesiastical documents, is not to be a great policeman of orthodoxy. Uh, theology becomes greatly distorted when it just becomes uh, the police wing of, of orthodoxy. Um, and, in fact, and, and, I should go ahead. No, you go ahead. 
No, I was say, in fact, that's one of the criticisms Ratzinger gave, kind of circling back where we began with the original document that later became Dei Verbum is he quoted John the 23rd's opening speech to the council. Um, the substance of the faith is one thing, the way it's presented is another, and it's supposed to be joyful. Um, and, and how the, the spirit of that document and the documents was negative, negative, negative. Yeah. Uh, and so I think one of the lasting contributions of Vatican II and the resource camp is joy, you know, and not that you don't have, I know a lot of joyful rad trads, right? But yeah. the, so you can't judge individuals, but the overall tenor of the approach it, it, it is this welcoming joy that now, sadly, then you get all are welcome and then we don't actually teach any truth. And that's. Yeah. And that's not it. joyous. It's a different kind of uh, jocularity or whatever, yeah. a different kind of, of fellowship that isn't rooted in truth. Uh, mm. Balthazar has this tiny little book called Paul's uh, uh, St. Paul struggles with his congregation. Very little tiny book by Not Balthazar. Right yeah. And and he, one of the things Balthazar notes in there is that it's what's so often neglected about St. Paul is in the midst of all of his struggles with his and admonitions and saying this about the Corinthians or saying this about the Thessalonians. The thing, the undercurrent through it all is joy. Here's why I want you to believe what I'm teaching you, because this alone will bring you joy. Joy, joy, joy in Christ is what, you know, St. Paul was about. And that's what I see, Ray Sorsma and Ratzinger. And you cannot read Ratzinger. There's a German word that's hard to translate. It's called gemütlich. It, it's, it's, it means a generalized feeling of just internal. Something makes you feel good inside, warm. And I just remember whenever I read Bratzinger, I like to say, it makes me feel gemütlich. Yeah. You know, I, I just have a sense that there's a, there's a, a conveniencia here. There's a congruity here. There's a truth here that is non-defensive, and it brings me joy. Yeah. You know, and what, what sort of what better way maybe to end our conversation today than to say, uh, you know, Ratzinger brings us joy to read him. But I don't necessarily want to force, to, if there's more that you want to add to the conversation, we can go on too. No, that, that's, we could go on forever about that topic. Um, but yeah, as he said in one of his catechesis on Paul, quoting Paul, the, the, the joy of becoming God's co-workers in the truth, right? And that interplay between charity in truth and truth in charity that he spoke of. Uh, and, and it's so easy to err on one side or the other of lacking the charity or lacking the truth. But yeah. of course, beauty for him was the apologia for the church. And, and that's, think, yeah, absolutely. And that's my concern with the synod on synodality and the appointment of, I mean, I don't want, you, you have an, a university position and a certain reputation to protect. So I will make it very clear at this point, you know, uh, you know, these are my views. I, I can say what I want because I'm beholden yeah. to no one. But my view is that, you know, the opinions expressed in the German synodal way, people like Cardinal Holerich, people like Cardinal McElroy, uh, various other appointments, the, the instrumentum laborum for the upcoming synod, which doesn't mention Christ more than four times. It all bespeaks to me a fundamental loss of that joy. You know, wow. we're, 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 go we're going to have a meeting on meetings that's going to talk about, you know, we're synodal people marching synodally towards the synodal kingdom in our synodal way without, you know, and it just all sounds like such bureaucratic buzzword anodyne nonsense to me. The resurrection of 1975 and rotary phones and eight track tape players all over again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, here, I think this is a sign of the times, so to speak. You can only go on your own experience and try to gather the experience of others. But as far as I can tell, I'm fairly normal as a human being, come from a fairly normal family, fairly middle of the road, whatever. But I have paid this much attention to that whole synod. Yeah. And other- For those who are just listening to audio, he's holding up the zero with his fingers. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think a lot of my colleagues are the same way. I got, I've got asked once or twice, I think, to do a kind of interview about the Senate. And I said, sorry, I don't care. You know, I haven't even paid attention. Yeah. My, my point of bringing that up is there's a whole subtopic of reception of documents and councils. And I, I don't see how this is going to be received, not even just received well or poorly, but I, I We'll see what happens, but at least amongst those who are trying to follow the magisterium, I think most of us, if I had to put money on it, are completely ignoring it. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe you could say, well, we should know how to counteract whatever's bad. But I think most of us are at the point where we're just checked out. We're just doing resource month. We're going back to the sources. Yeah. No time for this. You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm a little more cynical. I see it as a subterfuge. Uh, yeah. I, I pay attention to it because I'm older than you. Yeah. And I, re I remember, I mean, I was in seminary 78 to 85. And of course I was catechized before that. I remember the post conciliar church and I remember it well. And I have seen this strategy before. This is not new. This is taken right out of the playbook of other progressives from an earlier era. And, and, it's deja vu all over again for me. Yeah. And so some have accused me of, well, you're retrojecting your own lousy experiences of the seventies into the current moment. Well, maybe I am. And maybe though it's right, maybe I should be interjecting those things because maybe that is what's happening here. And I do think that to a large extent, all of this talk of dialogue and perhesia and accompaniment and so on, it doesn't bring joy is what we're talking about. It's it's a ruse. It's a subterfuge to bring in through the back door what they can't just bring in directly through the front door. Uh, and that and that's that's what really worries me is why the instrumentum laboris doesn't ever mention Christ. But I agree with you. Now, I'm going to come back to what you said. I'm not disagreeing at all. I would say, for example, when you look at the percentage of Catholics that participated worldwide in the listening session, it hovers somewhere between one and two percent of Catholics all over the world. Now, in sheer numerical numbers, that's a lot of people, but taken as a percentage of the whole of Catholics, it's grossly insignificant. And yet you have people like Massimo Fagioli, Austin Ivory, saying, oh, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through the people of God. This is people of God telling us what the Holy Spirit. No, it isn't. It's a poorly collated and poorly curated set of random opinions from about 1% of Catholics around the world that is now being translated into somehow a Joachim of Fiore, like God is doing a new thing in the church. Yeah. That's yeah. my issue with it. Sing a new church into being. Yeah, in fact, I... Yeah. Uh, Sing a new church into being. I Everybody I've talked to, I have not so far, out of the people I've asked, which granted it's probably only about 10, but I, I have not encountered a person who has even seen how you would respond to such a poll or whatever that was, right? None of us were consulted even on that. No. Um, so I, I see your point. And, and even though I wasn't there in the 70s, uh, it's kind of interesting how you can look back. I'm like, this is deja vu all over again. I can see the same hermeneutics. It, it is interesting. I wonder, I, I just, uh, I want your input on this because I kind of go back and forth on, well, here's something I 
know is certain. We need people like you working on this. So people like me and the rest of my colleagues who couldn't give a blank about it, we, we, we that can't just ignore it entirely. I, I do wonder, okay, if you only have this small percentage, I, I guess what's the worst case scenario? You get documents that enshrine it. That's bad. Um, but I think of the the old Ratzinger essay that became pretty famous, Faith in the Future, where he predicts right. the future of the church, right? Being smaller, but yeah. stronger. I, I I don't know what effect will this have? What's that look like? Uh, I don't know what you're, you've probably written on it. Well, my, my, I've written on it and all the dangers uh, of all of this. Nevertheless, my hope is that uh, I don't think it's, it's interesting. I think Pope Francis is playing a kind of dangerous game. I think Pope Francis is, is a thoroughly Orthodox Pope. Uh, everything he writes can be interpreted in an Orthodox way. In fact, he's written some really beautiful things. And I, I think he has some genuinely profound ideas about where he wants to take the church. And I think that he doesn't view the conservative wing of the church as embodying the sort of pastoral approach that he sees as necessary. So he has privileged the more progressive wing of the church because I think he prefers their pastoral style as more gradualist and, and pastoral gradualism and so on. Don't crush the bruised reed. But I think that's a dangerous game that he's, I think he figures, well, Rome can hold the line. We'll re-empower all of these progressives. I like their pastoral listening skills, but we, we can hold the line on it. And I think that's what's going on. I'm, so I wanna, my point is I'm holding out hope that what's going to happen is what happens to like after the Synod on the Amazon, where all of these bold predictions were being made. We're going to get married priests. We're going to get women deacons yeah. and all this. And then the Apostolic Querida Amazonia comes out, the Apostolic Exhortation afterwards. Yeah. And, and the Pope basically says, oh, that was all a nice conversation, but here we go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now that who talks about the Amazon on the Synod anymore? Nobody. So I'm hoping yeah. you're right. That's a long winded way of saying, I hope you're right, Matthew. Yeah. That at the end of the day, after after two years of synods on synods on synods, that it's going to amount to a whole lot of nothing. Yeah. Let's hope. Well, and best based case scenario is that it does lead to some true developments in ecclesiology uh, that might be actually positive. Uh, so I hold out hope for that as well. But anyway... Uh, that's my rant. And to bring it, no, the, the reason why to end this, I don't want to end like that. To bring it back to Ratzinger, my point is that I don't want the theology of Ratzinger or Ray Sorsman in general to be eclipsed in all of this. Uh, because, and I want to bring it back to sort of the Vatican II and so on. You're not going to resolve quite often great disputes in the church from pure authority alone, top down. So, for example, go back to the Council of Nicaea. You've got the Arian controversy. The council affirms homoousios, this controversial term. Christ is consubstantial with the Father. The council ends. The controversy continues. Just ask Athanasius what he thought of whether or not the controversy continues. But my point would be that the council's proper understanding of the divinity of Christ does not really become received by the church until it gets theologically worked out by people like Athanasia, people, Athanasius, people like the Cappadocians, and, and, and then later on even Maximus the Confessor and the Monothelite controversy and so on. So my point is, here's the point, I'm firmly convinced that Vatican II was a resourcement council, and that all of the disputes that we're seeing in the church are not going to be resolved from some sort of authoritative diktat from on high. The church has to work this out theologically, and the best theology for doing that, like Athanasius 1,700 years ago, is the theology of people like Ratzinger. 
And that's I'm not championing Ratzinger because, oh, I just personally find him gemütlich. I'm championing him because I think he's the he and others who think like him are the proper theological key for moving the church forward. Amen to that. And the Bible, the study of the sacred page is the soul of theology. How many times is the scripture quoted in some of these documents? You go back and you go back and look. I've seen it before, right? Not much. No. Uh, so the path again with Aquinas. You read these guys, you get the tradition, and you get the scriptures, and, and that has to be the path. Yeah, it really does, and that's the fear. I mean, so much of this is just sociologistic and psychologistic, and the buzzwords of modern bureaucratic bourgeois culture. Uh, so, yeah, there's a worry there, but there is also hope. Uh, the Holy Spirit is still with the church. Uh, pope Francis is not a heretic, <laughs> right? And he is the real pope. Uh, and uh, you know, we're, 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 this too shall pass, all right? This too shall pass. And hopefully, what will perdure is the theology, the great theology of people like Joseph Ratzinger. That, that's, that's why I do shows like this. But anyway, hey, thanks, Matthew, for coming on today. Do you have any last words for the viewers? Oh, I'm happy with that. No, it's it's good. Go read more Ratzinger. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That's let's make that our takeaway. Hey, everybody, go read some more Ratzinger. Oh, and by the way, my readers, I'll, I want to plug your book. Hold up your book. Uh, oh, you know, my most recent one. Let's see. That's my 2022. Okay, book. Okay, for those who are just it. listening, it's from the dust of the earth. Uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, the Bible. And, and the, the theory, theory of, of evolution. evolution. All right. A lot of people are going to be very interested in that. Who published that, Matthew? Uh, my monographs have all been by CUA Press. And which is, let me tell you, for those who don't know, that's a very refereed press. It's, it's a hard press to get published by. So big kudos to Matthew Ramage for, for getting uh, published by CUA Press, a very good press that does nothing but excellent stuff. So run out and buy that book, everyone, if you're interested in that topic. So thanks again, everyone, uh, for uh, tuning in today. And thank a big thank you to Matthew Ramage for coming on the show. I thought this was a great conversation. So thanks a lot. And we'll see you again for the next show.